market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that has a very short temper when it comes to short sellers. I'm not going to get started yet, Doc. I'm going to just settle down. I'll get back to that in a minute. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? Good day, Captain. How are you? Mate, I, well, depends. But it depends. Generally excellent. When it comes to short sellers, way less than excellent. I, I love the short sellers. They're such... They're You're providing... trying to wind me up, aren't you? They're providing good service, Doc. Oh, they? for the love of God. I... All right. I'm not, I'm not even going to start. Mate, on, we've got a big podcast this week. We've got plenty to cover. Firstly, welcome to the Volatility Party, rate cuts, currency devaluations, and trade bans. And that was just on Monday and Tuesday. We've got some earnings from some of our biggest and best and of our worst companies. We're going to talk a little bit of retail. We're going to get back to the shorters, and we will dip into the Motley Fool mailbag, our favorite, and from the correspondence we get, probably our listeners' favorite too, hopefully. Captain, I was going to do a tangent. Already? Yeah. You actually that's a bit late for us, actually. Well, you know, here's the thing. What do you mean to attend by sentence three or four of the podcast? You've waited for a whole paragraph and a half. Well, well here's the thing, all right? right? You said this Don't is going to be a big podcast. I did. Every podcast of ours is big. This is true. And very, very high quality. It's awesome quality. Funny, entertaining, informative. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Emmy award winning. Exactly. Well, no. So, I mean, eventually. We're not, we so now we have to top all of that. We haven't yet won an award, but we will soon. So can we call ourselves award-winning if we know we're going to eventually? Uh, I think so. I, we can just ask Will to give us an award. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the award-winning finance podcast. Exactly. Motley Fool and Triple M. Let's get on with it. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. It's been such a big, this is Friday, it's been such a massive, massive week that when we're putting the agenda together for, for our conversation today... I kind of missed the headline entirely, right? You had to remind me at the end of the conversation, oh, by the way, don't forget the whole rate cut kind of trade war thing that went on early this week. And I kind of said, yeah, it's been such a big week, we almost forgot about it. So let's lead off with it so we don't get it left behind. We won't spend too long on it because, frankly, a week is a long time in politics, a day is a long time on the stock market. Monday and Tuesday were, uh, how would you describe it? Pretty tough days, right? The the Twitter-in-chief, Mr. President Trump, had his way with the, the Twitter machine and the... U.S. Fed dropped rates and the U.S. was it Department of something uh, declared that China was a currency manipulator. The Chinese have devalued their currency. They've banned any purchase of U.S. agricultural exports. And that was just Monday and Tuesday. Then we had India, Thailand, New Zealand, and was there one other that cut rates this week? New Zealand cut, did a double one. Yeah, 50 US points. India was down 0.35, I think. The yeah. Yanks were down a quarter. Um, there was one other country, I think, in the back of my mind. Anyway. Yeah. So the US was before, before all this. So you, well, it kind of kicked it all off, right? That was yeah. the that was the first shot in the locker. Mate, let's not spend too much time on the macro. A, because it's a little bit boring from time to time. B, because we've got a truckload else to mm-hmm. talk about. Uh, but what do you make of the week in macroeconomics and geopolitics? I think we're just, you know, it's the race to the bottom, as I say, right? Everybody's cutting rates because everybody wants to have the lower currency. You know, everybody can't have the lower currency by dumb. by definition. Isn't it dumb? So, you know, we're all going to have God, you know, zero this. interest rates and, uh, you know, well, maybe negative interest rates and something like that. It's just, <laughs> uh, and this is the problem. Without getting political, I know you get uncomfortable when I start talking things that are politically related. It The whole win-lose scenario being propagated by the US at the moment, this is kind of the problem, right? If you're in win-win scenario, you don't try and bash each other over the head to this mutually assured destruction kind of idea. But when you sort of, when you frame up winning as someone else having to lose, then you're trying to beat them, which makes them respond. And there is, as you say, this massive race to the bottom and that negative interest rates are almost the only way this can go, right? At some point, if if currency, country A, doesn't matter who it is, cuts rates, um, their currency weakens. So all of a sudden their exports are cheaper, Current country B loses out, so they have to respond even just to, to restore the balance they previously had. Mm. So country A then responds again and retaliates. This is kind of the trade wars writ large at, at a at a currency level, right, mm-hmm. an interest rate level. There is, I mean, nothing's, nothing's you know, um, nothing's arbitrarily going to happen regardless of what people do. But if this goes unchecked, the natural response, the natural reaction, the natural final outcome is... Very, very low negative rates, surely. Yeah, I, I mean, as you said, it doesn't have to be this way, right? So maybe, you know, just to horribly simplify this, but maybe, you know, 
Uh, China is, let's say, very good at making uh, silk blankets. India is very good at making, uh, you know, bath towels. Mm-hmm. And maybe U.S. is very good at making paper napkins, yes. right? Then, you know, they can still trade <laughs> those things against right, each right, other right. because, you know, they're each good at making something which of high quality. Which, which is the other kind way. of the, that, that's the whole kind point of, the of globalization, idea. right? If, <laughs> yeah. Like where, where you have a competitive event, we've got wonderful conditions for growing wheat. Yeah. Right, Japan has not a lot of farmland. They're going to buy some of our wheat. We're going to buy some of their rice. Everyone's happy until we all start getting a little bit too silly about how this works. Exactly. Um, and the, the stupid thing about the trade wars is that the average consumer is going to end up paying more by definition. Yeah. When you when you say no no screw you, I'm going to make the paper napkins and my own silk towels and my own linen blankets, whatever it was you said. And they're going to cost twice as much to make here because well we don't really have an industry for it. We have economies of scale and we don't have local production. We don't have low wages. No. But stuff that we're going to make them here. Yeah. And actually, the reality is we're not going to even make them here, right? I mean, the thing is that it just is economically not practical. Right, right, right. You know, like, the thing is that like, you know, if you're an advanced economy, it doesn't make sense for you to maybe make like, you know, let's say use an example, paper napkins. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So if you're, if you're an advanced economy, you Simple use your clothing. Not, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you use your knowledge economy to do something more complicated. Whereas, yeah, right. whereas an economy that's trying to become oh. an advanced or an emerging economy actually does that. Man. And then we just <laughs> keep laddering on that. And, you know, it's all very simple if you think about it that way. But It's uh, the equivalent of saying we don't want highly paid, highly skilled, highly trained computer engineers, we'd rather those guys go and work in a garment factory for $15 an hour. Exactly. It just completely doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, and the other funny thing about the trade war uh, overall is that in the moment you put tariffs, right? You, you, so the US tariffs are interesting because you put $300 billion, tariffs of 10% on $300 billion of goods. Mm-hmm. Those are goods. The interesting thing about those goods are a lot of those goods are actually American products you know, if you think about them, <laughs> That's right. right? So they're they're made by That's American right. companies That's in right. China, yep, then yep. from there, exported back yep. to the U.S. Yep. So the who's paying the cost? <laughs> I mean, you know, basically, basically American consumers are paying the cost. So it's it's a little bit, oh, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a very convoluted uh, thing. Mate, let's let's move on. Yeah, just because on. I I just I just can't do this anymore. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Earnings season is underway. It is the 9th of August as we record this. We've had the first full week, almost. I guess we haven't had a full week yet because Friday's still happening. We never know what will happen after recording. But we've had the first week of earnings season. Some of the biggest, some of the best, some of the worst, arguably, companies have reported this week. So we won't spend a whole lot of time on it, partly because, generally speaking, one set of earnings doesn't change hugely. Our view of a company, generally speaking, um, they're useful for kind of confirming or disconfirming trends and kind of views on companies, but they don't they don't overly matter. So those who want to kind of jump on a dime around earnings are probably missing the point a little bit. That's certainly our long-term view at The Motley Fool. But we'll just touch on a couple because it gives us a sense of those companies' progress, maybe even the sense, uh, the shape of the economy a little bit. So let's start with the biggest of big dogs, not the miners, they haven't reported yet, but CBA, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. The numbers were out this week, and I don't know whether I'm impressed or unimpressed by the numbers. The numbers themselves, pretty anemic. On the other side, given the state of the kind of housing market and everything else that's going on, you could, I mean, at one level, you can't be too unimpressed with what they've managed to deliver. Yeah. So, I mean, I would not disagree. I mean, the results were meh, but anybody expecting, you know, like scintillating profit growth out mm. of CBA was probably expecting too much, right? Right, right. Um, so, the profit numbers, like the top line, or what they call cash profits, I think was down. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some contraction in net interest margin, which is essentially the margin yep. that they, you know, pay off to depositors minus the margin that they're making or minus the interest they're making off the people uh, they're borrowing, uh, borrowing to. Yep. Right, um, that was down, which a contraction you'd expect that to happen because of rate cuts and so on and so forth. Yep. Um, yeah, but overall not bad. I mean, they, 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 it seems that, you know the broker-based uh, lending is growing pretty fast, mm-hmm. which is really good for them. And you know the the housing market may have or may not have bottomed out, which is again good for them. Um, again, long term, I mean, this business can't grow very fast. Yeah. I mean, it's just by by definition just can't grow at at a at a rocking fast pace. Kind of got to grow at the rate of. And I guess you don't oversimplify these things, but it's probably population growth plus the growth in average debt kind of as a, as a proxy. Like if your population grows at a couple of percent and then we could all borrow a little bit more every year because our ways are going up a little bit more, maybe there's a couple yeah. more percent on that. The banking sector as a whole, as you say, can probably only grow at, what, 4 or 5% a year on yeah, population growth plus inflation. If you have some inflation, maybe right, that's right. what you can get. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's assuming there's no other hiccups or issues with the housing market. So. Yeah, I mean, overall, good. Um, 
still making a lot of money. All right. Now, but here's the here's the the clickbait headline of the week was that the CBA's investment was $150 million into a Swedish buy now, pay later, after pay competitor. <laughs> was it Klarma? Is that how I pronounce Cl- it? Klarna, I think, Klarna, out, of, Klarna, out, of, Klarna. out of Sweden. A bunch of other people have invested in that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, very similar model. The largest fintech company in Sweden, I understand. This yeah. is interesting because, well, I guess we're kind of prone to think about buy now, pay later as an Australian thing. And maybe every every investor, every analyst looks at their own country and kind of evaluates that. I know you're more uh, US-centric or at least world world uh we're looking, that's not really a phrase, but you, you, you tend to take a more international view than most. Still, we tend to think about buy now, pay later as largely an afterpay versus zip kind of story. Um, we know split it's around. We know, was it Sendal, I think, from the US or something, whatever it was called? Yeah. Uh, Klarna now out of Sweden. At CBA taking a stake, do you do you make anything of it? Is this just a bank hedging its bets a little bit? Is there is there genuine competition? What do you make of the CBA investment in Klarna? You know, it's, uh, it's like uh, Telstra investing in tech. <laughs> that's that, that's 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 my closest analogy. I don't make anything of this. It means nothing okay. to CBA holders. Um, it, it just shows gives them something, though, right? And it probably to me it also gave me a sense of maybe reminding me of the internationalization of finance. I mean, to some degree, those of us who are a certain age remember we used to have bank card here in Australia. It kind of died. I mean, it was folded by the banks voluntarily, but effectively it died because Visa, MasterCard, Amex just simply got too big, mm. too ubiquitous. Bank cards didn't have a place anymore. At some level, we need to think a little bit about Afterpay and Zip in the con- and split it, I guess, in the context of that same international lens, right? Like yeah. Afterpay's got international ambitions and it's trying to go to the US and doing a pretty good job of that, by the way. But it's not exactly the only player in this buy now, pay later space who has ambitions to be the MX or Visa or MasterCard of the buy now, pay later sector. So if, if I say one thing, you know, one, when a big incumbent takes notice of competition, mm. I basically say that, you know, you have arrived. So right, in a way, yeah, yeah. in a way, this is confirmation that, you know, people think of Afterpay and that mm, sector mm. as a real sector, yeah, as yeah. a real competition, and that they feel that they need to respond in some way or the other. So that's what's happening. And that's pretty much a good thing for Afterpay and competition. I mean, you know, this doesn't have to be, I mean, if this is how people are going to transact in the future, it doesn't have to be, it's not going to be a winner's take all type mm, of market, mm, right? Is it, is it a is it a few winners take all though? It's I mean, think about the credit card companies. There's not room for a fifth or sixth or seventh credit card company at some level. Well, like you have like three maybe, right, like, you right. know, like one, two are pretty much at par, and then you've got like a three, and then you've got like a four, five, six, yeah, yeah. right? And maybe something or a like diners that. Club. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, diners and whatever else. There's yeah. some other other shit. Forgot. Probably is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like things like union pay and so on oh, yeah. as well, right? Oh, that's true. Um, yep. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does seem like this competition is heating up. Um, yeah. One could say that Afterpay is basically won in Australia um, and is trying now to win in the US, mm-hmm. the bigger prize. And that question is, I think, you know, we don't have an answer for that. That's still open, mm. right? Um, but yeah, good for CBA. This doesn't move the dial for CBA in yeah, any way, yeah. but, you know... I mean, kind of gives them a foot in the door, right? Yeah. They get to learn a few things, maybe make a few bucks if clients are successful. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, and for a business CBA size, it's probably a... I'll say, I'll say smart investment. You made this great. I think it's probably a smart investment to at least be part of the game to, to, have, a, to have a sense of what's actually going on. Would you agree? Uh, I actually disagree with that. I okay. mean, you know, instead of paying that, because, you know, they probably are going to be bad managers of it. First, I mean, their ability to actually make good investments, um, in my opinion, just like Tes- uh, Telstra, <laughs> is pretty questionable. Yeah. But for now, they're passive investors, right? So this is not, they're not we, taking it over to run it. They're not I, buying I, it to I run agree, it. I agree. I agree. But even as passive investors, I mean, you know, Telstra's record is not that great, not right? Direct, I mean, true. so, you know, what makes us con- confident that, uh, <laughs> you know, these guys are running, good at running a bank. Yeah, yeah. But are they good at picking investments? So they might be a contrary indicator it might it might be a contraindicator <laughs> it, it could be many things it could mean that Klarna has got a good deal here mm. and it's got a good multiple yeah, and it's right. made some <laughs> it's basically got you know more venture yeah. money coming in like a capital uh, yeah it's sucking in capital which is good for them it does not necessarily <laughs> mean it is good for them uh, for CBA so yeah, no so you know if CBA had this money maybe they should just pay a dividend to make you know our um, CBA <laughs> shareholders happier um, yeah I don't look at CBA yeah, I don't guys. look at CBA as a company that's capable of innovation like rapid innovation or like you know disruptive innovation and and i don't think i don't think of them as an investment company either so um yeah that's that's uh, my my view yeah a couple of the results during the week we had suncorp come out with a relatively disappointing uh result they're going to disband or at least wind back their so-called marketplace they want to be the amazon of finance which frankly i think is a really smart idea as a concept 
Um, maybe to your point about Commonwealth Bank, maybe someone like Suncorp isn't the place where that sort of stuff normally gets born and and grown. It's very hard to turn a a regular kind of a you know a, a stable, um, probably. I w- I won't say unchanging, but certainly a business that's got used to running a certain way. When you want to become a marketplace for finance, running that out of a traditional bank and insurance company can be tough. So that's an interesting one. Transurban came out during the week. The, the Pac-Man of toll roads has bought uh, the rest of the M4 in New South Wales that it didn't currently own. Um, the West Connects project still underway. So that's happening. They're raising a half a billion bucks, I think, from memory to, to complete that deal. The one that stuck out to me, though, mate, I have to say, and I... I have been maybe a little bit guilty of a bit of shade for it. I don't generally like that, but poor old AMP. It was the result of the the week. $2.3 billion loss. Billion. Even without underlying, still lost, I think, $300 million. Um, It's going to raise, well, wants to raise, we'll see whether that gets the cash. I assume it will. About $600 million of fresh capital to shore up the balance sheet. It's selling off AMP life and trying to get another $2.5 billion of cash from that. It doesn't – well, we, we all know it's a business in trouble. None of the results suggested that it has anything thus far to show for its efforts. And it's now unveiling a new strategy to be a higher growth, higher returning, customer-focused institution. Is this the last throw of the dice for the AMP? I mean, it, you know, it's it's – it's it's this was a twenty three dollar stock in nineteen ninety eight. It's now a dollar seventy three when it went on a trading hold on Wednesday. That's a more than ninety percent loss, about the lowest price I think it's ever been, give or take a few cents probably. Um, yet to see how the market responds because the shares were in a trading halt when the announcement was put out. Um, it, it, I mean, I guess you've said before that companies like Microsoft, for example, have enough cash in the balance sheet to try a few things. If the first second thing fails, maybe eventually the third one succeeds. It gives you some time. AMP's had plenty of time. They've tried plenty of new strategies over and over and over again. I can't see they've got enough room for any more. This feels like a bit of a death or glory one, right? There's just no balance sheet strength left. There's precious little cash left. Funds are flowing out of the AMP's product at a rate of knots. They're going to more aggressively deal with their uh, agents. They're going to buy back some of their businesses, but only some of them. It, 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 it feels like a bit of a Hail Mary pass, quite honestly. Maybe Hail Mary Pass is the way to summarize this. <laughs> um, I'll just start by saying something also. The share price is $2. And if somebody bought when it was 20 oh. and they're still holding on, expecting <laughs> to get back to even, I'm just going to say that it's a 10-bagger. You need a 10-bagger from here for um, your price to basically get to even if that's what you're looking to do, um, which I would give the odds of happening as very low. <laughs> so that's number one. Um, I don't want to make light of this, but I think like you know, when a company has basically you know the share price has like you know like gone down 90 percent. a lot of things have gone wrong Mm. right um with respect to it it's like uh, i mean i don't know i didn't actually carefully follow the amp life it looked like the deal is done but i Mm. I, my understanding was the last time the deal didn't get done was because the reserve bank of new zealand basically (laughs) said you can't do it and Mm -hmm. you need to do you need to do x y and z before you can actually do it which it seems like they've done we think but they need still (laughs) but wouldn't they still need the approval of the new reserve bank of new zealand to actually go get through with the deal that's the that's my understanding yes (laughs) okay so i mean it's probably not a done deal I don't know. Like, I mean, this is a business that has got so many skeletons that have come out over, you know, the last couple of years, right? So, I don't know. I, I, I just don't. I just don't think. You know, I would not be investing right now in this business. I would wait for actually the turnaround to happen. So mm-hmm. that, you know, most turnarounds don't turn. So if it starts turning, and if I see traction, I would be happy. <laughs> if I was looking to buy, yeah, yeah I would yeah. be happier to buy at a higher price, provided I saw proof that. Yeah, the ship was turning. I th- and I think that's exactly it, right? I think yeah. you've. It, I would not I buy this right I now. I don't hoping. say it's a sucker trade right now, but you've really, you know, to, to, to imagine that their current strategy after the last half dozen new strategies will yeah. finally work. I mean, at some point, as I said, if you throw enough mud against a wall, eventually some of it sticks. Maybe this is the time it works, but you could have bet, made that bet three or four or five times before and been wrong. Yeah. Given it's just horrible, horrible financials, the money outflows, the the kind of advisor revolt within the within the organization. You'd be very, I mean, there's there's value and there's and there's kind of just you know hope and yeah. not much more. And this this feels like that last category. This is a punt. If you want right. to buy it right now, you're basically making a punch. Just assume that this money is going to be lost and yeah, maybe yeah, you yeah, get lucky, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, the balance sheet is like you know is in an atrocious shape even after they you know raise capital and things like that. So mm. I, I don't know. Yeah, I would pass on it. But yeah, I can understand. This is you know if somebody wants to take a punt. This could be uh, one of them. Maybe somebody's going to buy it. I doubt, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sounds interesting. <laughs> I, I, right, who buys A&P? Anybody? <laughs> not me. No, maybe Commonwealth Bank with some of the extra money from Klarna. I'm not sure. Let's move it. Let's, Let's move it. it to something better. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, you want me to move to something better. I don't know I can do that exclusively. I kind of can, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the old, you know, give with one hand, take with the other here. Mm-hmm. The retail story, if you saw the newspapers last week, it was DJs, it was Meyer, it was retail doom and gloom, the, the struggling, terribly, you know, woeful economy. And then Kathmandu came out yesterday with a growth of 14%. This is supposedly a, uh, I saw a headline in the SMH today saying a love of puffer jackets was to, was the was the reason. And, and be that as it may, I won't, I won't, uh, you've seen my finance, uh, my, my finance, you've seen my fashion choices, so I won't, I won't claim to be a fashion expert or give any, any judgment on that. However, it does seem that Kathmandu is selling what we want or we're buying what Kathmandu is offering. And yet Nick Scarley had Still a good result, profit growth of 2.8% from memory, which frankly is good. It's its worst in a decade and certainly down from its own expectations. Shares were up as it turns out, so maybe shareholders expected worse. What, just kind of compare and contrast those two for me. The Kathmandu result of the Nick Scarley result in a broader economy when retailers seem to be struggling. That's interesting. You know, maybe I'm going to get into speculation zone here, but but you know, Kathmandu, like you're buying, you're basically going to a store which is a specialty store. Yep. You know, they they have like you know hiking stuff. They have some rain gear. They have some you know exercise Puffer gear. jackets. You know, <laughs> special. <laughs> I'm just calling it special jackets. Um, so they're they're smaller price. They're expensive items. Yep. You can buy them on sale, yep. but they're they're small. The the total basket size there's going to be small, yep. right? Uh, go to Nick Scully. Nick Scully is on the top, you know, more premium end of furniture. You know, it's it's more expensive uh, typically than going to Harvey Norman, for example, or you know, another furniture place like you know, get a furniture mart or something like that. Um, so you're looking at buying more expensive sofas, which are like five thousand dollars plus. So you're looking at buying an expensive, you know, table, uh, you know, dinner table for like you know, five thousand dollars or something like that. Those things are big, bigger purchases and. You know, again, the the sentiment on the housing side, you know, people feeling that they've got too much debt and so on and so forth, probably is taking a hit on that side. Um, you know, maybe people are not buying new houses. New houses typically would result in new furniture if you have not bought new stuff. Mm. <laughs> Moved into a new um, a new dwelling, you probably don't need new furniture. So, I mean, th- those sort of things are probably impacting uh, Nick Scully. That said, I thought, you know, given given the circumstances, I think Nick Scully's results were pretty pretty darn good. Right, mm. and and uh, yeah, Nick Scully is really good with it. Also, it's the way it stocks things, right? It actually does not really stock much. You, you know, it basically you know creates things on order. Right, you buy a sofa; it's most likely not there. It's going to come in like four months' time from somewhere in Malaysia or China. So um, that probably helps them with sort of working capital management. Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, maybe it's a tale of two cities. I think you can still say there's some softness, not, but you know, maybe in certain sectors there's no softness, and depends mm. again on what sort of product ranges you have. I have half a theory, mate, that the economy is slightly better than people think, and the difference is that we're looking at physical retail and forgetting that online retail exists, or especially retail exists. I mean, if you if you know, for all the headlines of David Jones confirms retail slump. It's kind of like, well, no, that's just a David Jones sucks. You know, it's we've got. You know, I, I did some numbers the other day. JB Hi-Fi is growing its online sales at mid-teens, I think, or low twenties. Kogan's growing custom numbers at fifteen percent a year. Premier Investments, the home of Peter Alexander and Smiggle and Just Jeans and JJ's, it grew its online sales like thirty-one percent last year. Um, do you have any? I mean, there's no, there's no question that the Australian economy is not in great shape. That, that's that's true. I'm not trying to suggest that it's diametrically opposed to the current view, but I do wonder whether we're maybe missing the bigger picture because we're only looking at the stuff we're used to looking at, which is bricks and mortar retail of the sorts of stores that, frankly, are you know 1980s, 1990s kind of stalwarts, but not exactly the 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 bellwethers of today. Yeah, that that possibly is actually a good theory, right? I mean. Uh... Yeah, that yeah, could possibly. Very, yeah, and that that could very much be happening. And uh, yeah, like you know, things like Afterpay, mm. right? Things like Afterpay right. is probably yeah, yeah, going to yeah. help the the retailer that mm-hmm. is you know uh, providing your smaller basket sizes. Retailer that is shopping online, right? Mm. And if I'm mm. shopping online, I'd use Afterpay. There's no problem. There's no reason not to use right. Afterpay. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so things like that, I think are yeah. And and I th- I take your point. Yeah, like online for many many of our uh, companies, those that have actually got an online strategy is actually going. And maybe as you said, bigger brick and mortar is actually 
actually dead, mm. right? So maybe more smaller focused well, niche. De- dead, dead in dead in your terms, right? Not, not actually dead, dead, just not growing. Or you're saying literally dead? Well, dead like. They're basically basket cases. <laughs> like, I mean, I take your point. Like, you know, you can say David Jones is this and Myers is that. Yeah, right. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things on the mall <laughs> and, and on the malls. And they're, they're, well, like a Katmandu, for example, yeah, right? like, or a Smiggle, or, a, you know, there are... Yeah. Uh, you, you just think, like, it's... Retail... JB, JB is yeah, a great right, example, right. right? And JB is surviving in spite of the fact that a lot of the stuff that JB sells is actually available very easily online, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I, I, yeah, you're probably right in that sense that, you know, maybe retail is not that bad and the retail has shifted. Um, yeah, and to add to your point, like, you know, the economy is not great, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. not that crappy as well. I mean, Kogan, and again, it's a recommendation of ours, so maybe I'm a little bit biased and I always take those with a grain of salt, but... I don't know any myself for the record. Kogan has 1.6 million active customers. Now, we can argue about how they define active, and I don't really know the answer to that. But in any case, they're not just saying people who, you know, once possibly, you know, at some point in the past shop there must have been bought something last month or the last year or something. But if if the best part of, what's that, probably 25% of Australian adults, something like that, if you strip out the kids, um, and certainly 25% plus of, of the kind of the average kind of, you know, 25 to 54 kind of main cohort of, of spenders, if 1.6 million of us have have or are buying something from Kogan in a given year, that's a meaningful change. I don't imagine it's 1.6 million people that are going to David Jones or Maya, right? And yes, the numbers are different. Yes, the the market shares are different. The average basket size and every, like I'm not trying to compare the two directly, but if you get a sense that if you know if 1.6 million of us are shopping at Kogan as well as or instead of somewhere else, that's that's a chance of pretty meaningful disruption. And then you've got the Amazons of the world that don't report in Australia at all. And so if you're looking at reported Australian retail sales. You're never seeing Amazon Australia's numbers. You're never seeing, um, yeah, West Farmers bought Catch of the Day recently, for example. A whole lot of stuff that's changing pretty quickly. Yeah, well, you're not seeing any of the digital transactions that are happening. Right, 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 right. So if yeah, you have a, if you have a Netflix subscription, right. if you've got an Amazon Prime subscription, right, those right. are those are spendings, right? They they are in a way being spent in the economy. Well, that's well. Um, here's the thing, though. That's not really being spent in the economy well, at all. Well, okay, this is so. The, I mean, from from the point of view of the consumer. Oh yeah, people actually yeah people, handing money pe- over. People are <laughs> handing money yeah, over. So yeah. people are transacting. Yes. So people. Well, not like you know, they're not like you know, scrimping and mm-hmm. you know, being scrooges and you know, hiding all right, the money under right, the right. mattress, right? That's not really happening, it's just not it's showing just, up in Australia, it's just flowing away in different directions. Which is, I mean, that, that's a whole conversation for a different day, but yeah. that, I mean, that's still true, right? If you add up the Ubers plus the Netflixes plus the Google Plays plus the Apple TVs plus the Apple Musics plus the whatever else's, I don't know what that number is, but. There's a meaningful contraction, a meaningful outflow in the economy in a way that really, even 10 years ago, five years ago even, was nowhere near that size. If you think about the how many Netflix subscribers are we supposed to have? A few million, I suppose? Well, probably a couple of million. I right, so a couple easy. million people paying 10 bucks a month to make my maths easy over 12 months. I mean, you start to see meaningful outflows of cash that in theory would have either been saved or spent in some other way, not necessarily entertainment, but in on food or drinks or something. That cash leaving the country is, is a net contraction for, for the local mob. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, on the other hand, we're getting the GST for that. So, I sure. mean, that, that GST you're collecting. Um, on the, uh, I mean, yeah, um, the best way to think about it is if we've got 8 million households, then, you know, you think about that. Too, you've got 2 million people, say, subscribing to Netflix. You know, mm-hmm. you've got like a one-quarter subscription there. Right, so, there, right. there are people spending money there. You know, you know, if you look at Kogan, it's like, what, nearly 2 million again. Similar mm-hmm. penetration. So, I mean, you know, the spending behavior, habits, and how what people transact on has just changed. Phenomenal. Let's move on. Let's do it. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I promised you a rant and a rant you will have, but not just yet. We're going to dip into the Fool mailbag and thankfully some of our listeners, some of our uh, correspondents are channeling my rage and have asked questions about shorting. So I will hold my rant until then. First, though, let's start to answer a couple of other questions. Mate, the first one came from Colin this week. He says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. I've been listening for over a year, so you're doing something right. Oh, that or Colin just can't work out how to unsubscribe from the podcast. I definitely don't recommend you do that, by the way. Do never, not ever unsubscribe from the Triple M Motley for Money podcast because you never know what you'll miss. Do not unsubscribe. Put that little earworm in your head. Don't unsubscribe. He says, I have a sorry, there was a tangent. I have a question about the influence of exchange rates on ASX listed ETFs of foreign equities. So let's go that slowly. The influence of foreign exchange or exchange rates on ETFs of foreign exchanges listed on the ASX. He says, example, NDQ. Now that's the 
the an ETF done by beta shares of the NASDAQ 100. You can buy that in Australian dollars on the ASX, and it gives you exposure to the NASDAQ 100, which is the 100 largest companies' ex-financials on the NASDAQ exchange. He says, does it work the same way as Forex or the opposite? For example, is it better to buy when the Australian dollar is stronger and sell when it's weaker? Or is the impact of exchange rates taken care of by changes in the ETF price on the ASX? Which I think is a really, really good question. So, mate, you're our resident NASDAQ expert. You're our resident foreign exchange expert. Well, you're our resident foreign investment expert. Uh, what should an investor think about when it comes to foreign exchange and the impact of exchange rates on something like an ASX ETF for the NASDAQ or the S&P or something like that? So that's an interesting question. <laughs> so I, th- I think, and I actually, I've never really, I'm trying to think on the on the spot about this one. Sorry, I'll put um, you on the spot. <laughs> I think if, I think you're better off if you're buying, like, I mean, if, you're, if your thesis is that the rates uh, or the, the currency conversion is going to, say right now, let's say 65 cents and it's going to become a $1.20, then you're, you're better off actually buying a $1.20 and then like, you know, it's going to look much more, it, mm. the price is going to look much higher at, at, at you know, when, when the exchange rate actually drops to like 65, right? Yep, yep, so, yep. so I think that's the, the basic. The only problem with that is that it's hard to know what the exchange rate is going to do. <laughs> and if you, you know, if you're buying like, you right, know, if right. you're buying regularly, then it probably shouldn't matter. That's yeah. my answer. So to, Colin, to Colin's point directly, I think that the, and, the the pricing of the so long and boring version. Uh, I'll tell the short and less boring one. Uh, the people who are responsible for these things on the ASX, they call they say they call mark them to market every day. So they look at the value of the Nasdaq exchange, the Nasdaq 100 index. Uh, they then take account of the the currency change, and that is the price at which the transactions will be done for the Nasdaq NDQ ETF on Australian uh, markets around the rest of the world, but for Australia for now for our purposes. So if you're buying the the NDQ ETF, the NASDAQ 100 ETF on the ASX today, you are getting it at today's value and today's exchange rate. There is no there's no free lunch. There's no cost either. By the way, there's no downside to the way that is priced. It's priced at the current exchange rate and the current index level as it should be. To Doc's point, depending on how, what you expect to happen next, if you think the market is going to go up in the US or the currency is going to go down, then you can start to make some speculative decisions if you want to. Uh, But there is no impact. There's no cost, if you like, from that. Um, If you already own the NASDAQ ETF and the dollar goes down, then it's worth more to you because if you sold that, you get more American dollars because the index in Australian dollars is more valuable. Conversely, if the Australian dollars go up, then the index will be slightly less valuable when you bring that money home. So it's consider the the investment as if you owned the, the index in US dollars today. And then whatever translation happens subsequently because the exchange rate or the index moves, you get the full benefit or cost of. How'd I go, Doc? That sounds like a great explanation. Beautiful. You paid to say that, so I appreciate it. Motley Fool Money. Here we got a question from Curbs on Twitter. Thank you. Chris Kirby is the gentleman's name. Thanks, Chris. I should have been a good lady. Uh, but Curbs says, hi, Scott and Doc. I always feel smarter for listening to you guys, and I'm sure you can help me understand something I am struggling to comprehend. I very much doubt that, Chris, but thank you for for believing that. If you believe it, that's half the battle. Chris says, I own Rural Funds Group, which just got smashed by a short sell. And I should say this was earlier this week. The share price has bounced back, and we'll touch on that in a second. Why is it one short seller can supposedly find such devastating financial deficiencies when it is a publicly listed company that has its accounts audited and is viewed by the whole investment community? He says, to add salt in the wounds, I also own RFG and Corporate Travel, which suffered the same fate. Luckily, I have a strong and diversified portfolio, so I can manage, Chris. Now, Chris, firstly, mate, spot on. A diversified portfolio was always, always, always required, always recommended. Well done, having one, it does help cushion some of those blows when they happen. That's not the real question, though, Doc. So if these accounts are publicly available, it's a publicly listed company, it's audited by, in theory, a responsible and and, uh, uh, hopefully tenacious auditor, how is it possible someone can find a problem with the accounts that neither the rest of the investing public nor the auditor has found. Okay, that's an interesting question. I'm not going to talk anything specific about rural funds, largely because, you know, I don't follow that company and I know that you follow it more closely than I do. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I'll answer it very simply, right? So, I mean, um, the uh, let's say we file our taxes mm-hmm. using uh, an accountant. Mm-hmm. Um, the ATO looks, looks over it 
yet there is tax fraud. <laughs> no, so for clear, you're saying your tax is not our taxes. I'm not going to suggest I'm any part of that at all. No, well, I'm, I'm just saying, like, I mean, I'm just saying in, in general. <laughs> hypothetical, hypothetical. Hypothetical. If, if a person, a hypothetical person. <laughs> if a hypothetical person, I mean, yes. this is, it's the same thing with, with companies, yeah, right? Yeah. So companies have uh, audited accounts. Right. Companies' directors are responsible for making sure that they provide truthful financial disclosure. Mm -hmm. We have the ASX and the ASIC and all responsible for making sure there's continuous disclosure. Yep. All of, we, have, we have a lot of safeguard in the society yep. um, or in, in our business practices. And therefore, we'd expect that a lot, you know, large majority, vast majority are, are fine. Right. That does not mean that everything is fine. So, that, so, so, <laughs> yep. so the short sellers um, basically try to find a lot of the short sellers. And one of the things that they, they specialize in is, is trying to essentially find financial fraud. Mm -hmm. However, there's always a flip side to that. And I'll sell the flip side. The flip side is that a short seller by definition is going to profit when the stock falls. So yes. you, they are going to buy the stock. They actually don't even buy the stock. Well, they, they didn't, they actually, the short seller never buys the stock. What the short seller does is it borrows the stock mm -hmm. from other people mm -hmm. and then it sells it in the market, yep. right? So they basically now don't own the stock and they have borrowed from someone, so you and I, let's say, as an example, and mm -hmm. they have to return the stock back to us mm -hmm. if we ask for it or when we ask for it, right? So, so the only way they're going to profit is if the stock falls a lot, they can then go and in the market and buy at a lower price and give it back to us. Mm -hmm. That's how they're going to make money. So therefore, they, they have an incentive to uh, to also cause fear, Ooh, uncertainty. We will get to that. I had a question from Jason to, to cover <laughs> off in a minute. So hold that thought for a second. Yeah. Just so, just just go back to the and I, I like the way you're thinking, and I'll, I'll happily jump on that bandwagon. But just stay with me for a second. Back to the auditors and the, and the financial yeah. accounts. How is it possible with a in theory tenaciously audited set of accounts? that there could even be fraud on the ASX? How is it possible that, that this happens when there's supposed to be safeguards in place? Well, it's like, you know, any other big, big you know, um, let's call it financial scam, right? I mean, there are lots of alleged, checks. Alleged. alleged. right. So there are lots of checks and balances, yeah. but that doesn't mean that there are, you know, human beings by by definition are mm -hmm. innovative creatures. They can, always, <laughs> they can always find, you know, when our mind is not innovating new things, they can find ways to in, <laughs> to scam. Right, 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 right. So that's the basic. I mean, it, it doesn't happen that often mm. right but doesn't mean it doesn't happen yep. so so that, that's the answer to that question is that yes you know we have the checks and balances and we have a lot of them and by and large i think you know accounts are actually believable mm -hmm. we do like when we look at accounts we actually believe them yeah yep. um and you know of course we you know we do we do the basic checks as well but i mean you know if they if the if the auditors and if there's a respectable auditor has not mm -hmm. caught it it's unlikely that mm -hmm. other analysts are also going to catch it unless they go about you know doing a lot of digging which is what mm -hmm. the short sellers are known for yeah they, they and some of the good ones do a good job of it they, quite frankly they, they do a lot of digging and finding and you know they would you know talk to employees and yep. you know but that does not mean they're always right mm -hmm. is what i'm going to say look uh, so from I, i've worked for companies before with plenty of companies before but certainly large ones public ones that have been audited in the past i don't mean audited in a bad way just literally every company every six months has an auditor come through and says hey these books look fair and reasonable an auditor can't see every single transaction that's made to every single party follow every single cash flow back and forth and around the table uh, it, it can't check away every single transaction is even accounted for in the accounts and part of the short thesis on rural funds without getting into horrible amounts of detail is that some of the the, the allegation or the the suggestion, the supposition, I hope it was anyone's mouth here to keep me out of out of jail. Um, the supposition was that rural funds may have may well have misallocated or or creatively allocated some certain transactions in a, in a way that didn't necessarily represent the truth and may have under or overstated certain parts of their financial statements. So, in that sense, again, you know. <laughs> Is it real? Is it valuable? How do you account for it? Um, and even then, what's the company worth? Um, you can still have a company that's worth less from a short seller attack simply because the allocation was correct, but the implication of that, i.e., what does this mean for the long term, still there's a little bit to be desired. You can have circumstances where the treatment of some accounting numbers make numbers look good in the short term, but in the medium and longer term, those chickens come home to roost. So, look, I... <sighs> The other thing, to be fair, and if you're being a little bit cynical, and some of our listeners will be, and I can be from time to time, although I'm generally an optimist, um, the reality, don't forget as well, that auditors are paid by companies to audit their books. There is a certain amount of um, good old regulatory capture, to use a or misuse a, a term there. If you're getting paid a, a seven-figure sum to go and look over someone's books and give them a tick, um, and the you see across the table from the CFO who says, this is definitely the way it is, and here's why, and here's what's going on. If you're the auditor, you've got to have a pretty strong stomach to A, believe you have a different... Uh, perspective 
Uh, B, know that you're right when a, when a CFO or someone from the company who in theory has all the information says, no, this is definitely the way it is. Um, it's not the easiest job in the world to be an auditor and it wouldn't be the first time an auditor was snowed either either by implication or, or simply directly by someone who said, hey, you know, have, have a look, this, this is how it works, this is why I did it this way, this is why it makes sense, even if in the fullness of time that may have been a mistake. And, and auditors are paid to stand up to companies, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to defend auditors anytime soon. Um, from that sort of thing, if they are misled, famously Arthur Anderson signed off the Enron accounts. Arthur Anderson no longer exists in that form for exactly that reason. It's an accounting auditing firm because it simply just completely got it wrong and arguably may have been uh, less than direct with with the company and with the, with the with the public when it came to those accounts. So there's always the possibility of auditor um, inaction or lack of backbone or lack of information or, or enforcement. Often, though, it simply is a case of, hey, we've audited as well as we could. We just simply didn't see that coming. And and that's not an unreasonable way to go. Um, it's just a, it's a tough thing to get all that stuff right all the time. Modly for money. Mate, I'm going to go to the second question because I said you've got to I, I get you back on your uh, on your on your run here from Jason. Now Jason says, "Hi guys, still love the podcast." Now he puts a smile after that. I'm not sure if he that was like a is that, is that a vague, veiled warning or you know well, the still part is actually very concerning. It worries me, doesn't it? It's yeah. almost like he's going to take that away at some point. Exactly. Don't you love us unconditionally, Jason? Be nice if you did, wouldn't it? That, that's what I would think. All right. He says, another mailbag for you. As a holder of Rural Funds Group, I've been happy with the returns up until this morning. That was early this week, when the price dropped by half on the back of a short report. Now, the accuracy of the concerns aside, what is to stop someone from shorting a stock, releasing a report like this, and making a huge gain in a matter of hours on the back of it? Is such a thing even allowed? And if so, Why? It seems like blatant market manipulation, or am I missing something vital here? Now, on behalf of Jason, on behalf of us, we will put alleged about 14 times during that. So um, I don't think Jason is suggesting that in this particular case, there's any manipulation going on, but he raises a valid question of couldn't it in other circumstances, in a hypothetical circumstance, what's to stop your eye creating this 14-page or 400-page short report on Commonwealth Bank, alleging all sorts of horrible misgivings and misdeeds, um, just enough smoke to say, for people to say, with well, the smoke, there's fire. The shares opened, and as Jason said, they fell by 42% was the biggest fall I saw on the day. Uh, on the back of some concerns about, hey, this thing is, in their words, ultimately worthless, I think was the was the phrase. That's you know, Worthless is a, a pretty strong term. Unsurprisingly, the shares fell by 40%. Now, in the event, they've actually gained most of that back in the following two or three days. Some poor suckers sold at a 42% loss. Someone else bought, by the way, and made some money. But someone someone panicked because the short report sold. Others I saw actually on Twitter did go short and probably lost money doing so following the lead of of, uh, of that particular short seller. The share price bounced back after the company said, actually, no, we disagree with everything. And in fact, even some prominent short sellers on Twitter came out and said, yeah, we actually don't think the short report was as good as it could or should have been. The case was more flimsy than was otherwise expected. By then, the damage was done, wasn't it? Isn't the, the share price fall of 42%, the poor suckers who panicked and sold, they, they can't get that money back because the short thesis was was eventually, or possibly at least at this stage, unfounded. How the hell is this even allowed? So I'm going to, I'm going to first say that, you know, um, I don't follow rural funds closely and I have a very little opinion about exactly yeah, we, won't, the, we won't talk about rural funds at all to yeah. save ourselves from, from court at some later yeah. date. But just generally speaking, <laughs> yeah. when it comes to shorting in general, yeah. what's how, how, how can it be possible that someone can come up with a report which is either fantastically or terribly researched, cause panic, benefit from the price fall, skip away into the into the sunset, and then bugger the poor bastards who sold and lost money, albeit that subsequently a couple of days later the share price was back most of the way to where it started. Yeah, so I mean it's an interesting question, and I mean th- there's probably a fine line between allegations and um, an opinion. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's very difficult, I guess, again, I'm not a lawyer, so it's very difficult to sue for, you know, an opinion. I can mm-hmm. have an opinion saying that XYZ companies a sell because I don't like ABCD, right? That's mm-hmm. my opinion. And it's for people to believe my opinion or not. Um, it's different, I guess, if I'm making an allegation that, you know, XYZ has stolen money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you can get sued for it. So I don't know the fine line for <laughs> um, what is the fine line here. I mean, you know, maybe... And frankly, for most of us, if you don't know where the line is, you should stay well and truly away from it. Exactly. <laughs> so, 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 so my point is that, you know, there are hundreds of buy reports that come out, right? And there are hundreds of, you know, sell reports that come out. So this is no different. I guess a short report is no different in that sense, right? Mm. The problem, I think, is that 
you know, a buy report might come out from somebody famous and it might cause the stock to go up 5%. A sell report comes out from someone, it can cause the stock to go down 40% because of, again, that, you know, fear, how we respond to fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which is called FUD, right? <laughs> so ba- yes. basically, our, our reaction to the downside is very, you know, as, as human beings, that's how reaction is. Okay, I got to just run because this doesn't look good. And this mm. is exactly, you know, our caveman instincts come into, right. uh, come into play. So, I mean, in, in, in that sense, you know, there are more buy reports that come out for a company than a sell report like this, right? So, um, in, in that sense, it's completely fair. It's just the human emotions that, that is just working and counteracting here. Um, and, and then, you know, you, you know, negative news sells. So, there's, you know, it's more click worthy. You'll get more, you know, media play out of it. There'll be lots of, you know, stories on the Twitter. So, the, mm. it, it, uh, Twitter, you know, on news channels. It just it creates mm. a nice f- cycle. Which then again, you know, uh, breeds more fear, more uncertainty, more doubt. And then, you know, unless you are a really thoroughly researched investor on a company, you will have doubts Mm. and you might sell, Uh, which is is why short selling um, Mm. can work. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be that the company is, again, I mean, my, my point always is that if accountants and auditors miss stuff, Mm. There is. It is doubly hard for an outsider to actually figure out that stuff is wrong. <laughs> yeah, right? That's right. Exactly. That's right. If, if if it's doubly hard for someone from the outside to say it's you know mm-hmm. the accounts are one hundred percent correct, mm-hmm. right? It's exactly the same thing. I mean, the conversely, it's you know it's very hard for somebody to say the accounts accounts are actually wrong. Mm. So um, yeah, it's just the I think the human emotions at work, and you know uh, yeah. So I mean, there are lots of different ways in which this works. You know, you can use the media. You can use yeah. Uh, you can use the news cycle uh, and, you you know, you can get favorable news out of, you know, negative things sells more than, you know, positive. Mm. So. No, it does. And you're a human instinct, right? Back on the savannas of, of Africa, when someone yelled lion, you didn't stop around to see if they were right. You took off at a million miles an hour. When someone said, hey, there might be some good grassland up ahead a couple of miles, you say, okay, well, I'll, when I get there, I'll find out. You know, there's just a very, very different biological response, literally a very, very basic evolutionary biological response in, in humans when it comes to fear versus uh, upside or potential. And as you say, that even the strongest bull case, you might see shares rise 5 or 10%, maybe. I think I've ever seen a 10% rise on a, on a, on a strong bull case. I've seen a couple of 5 or 8s. Um, yet when you see a bear case and when someone is ultimately worthless, um, you know you, you see a, a very significant response because people just simply do panic. And, and again, at a portfolio level, we'd advocate against that. You almost never want to be able to be in that position. That being said, it's just something very human. Hey, you might lose all your money. Would you like to sell? Oh, hell yeah. Of course I would, you know, versus, hey, you might make some money here. Oh, okay, I might. All right, well, let me see. We just simply weigh those very, very differently. There's a there's a nice heuristic that uh, one of our ex-colleagues, Morgan Housel, who I mentioned a few times, talked about. You know, pessimism seems smart. There is just something fundamentally human about when someone gives us a bad news story, we tend to believe it and weigh that much more heavily than the optimism. Optimism seems Pollyanna-ish. It seems pie in the sky. Oh, yeah, fine. Off you go again on your little, you know, you're excitable. This might be okay type stuff. Even though we know things like stock markets rise over time and, and way, way, way outweigh the falls. There's just that this human thing of, yeah, maybe this is the crash coming. Maybe this is the crash coming. You very, you know, we, we would get 10 emails or Facebook comments or Twitter comments of, is this the beginning of the end? For every one, hey, maybe this is the beginning of a bull run. Yeah, you know, we almost no one ever says, you know what, guys, I think there might be a bull run about to start. Mm. But plenty of people are saying, you know what, I think this might be the beginning of the crash. It's just human nature. It's what we do, and it's not a criticism. It's just the reality. I will say a very quick another twenty seconds. I think short selling is awful. I think it should be banned. Our markets were never designed to facilitate people betting on share prices for, and that's not what they're for. It's not what they do. Um, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And if you want to do it, like I've said with derivatives, go and do it. Don't do it with a bookie. If you want to bet on share price falling? Go to the TAB, call it gambling. Let's not pretend it's part of a well-functioning capital market. There is simply no need for it. And as our, our questioner points out, it's it's more likely to create, you know, dissonance in a market that's simply out of way out of kilter with the realities of the situation because of the way people respond. And by the way, short sellers know that. These are not disinterested parties, investigative journalists doing their job. These are people who know full well they're going to create a whole lot of panic and a whole lot of share price falls by virtue of their actions. And so if you know you can create a 20 30 40% price fall by being a little bit more kind of flowery with the language you use, are you not incentivized just a little bit to do it? Absolutely, you bet you are. And that's why I have a, a massive, massive issue. That, that I don't even believe they're necessarily doing anything dishonest or even stuff that's 
improper in a, in, a, in, a, in a completely factual, rational way. But if you factor in not just what happens, but the impact of what happens, and that's why it's important to look at both, it's the impact of what happens, not just what is done. I just think the, the two are so far out of kilter. If it was up to me, I would ban short selling tomorrow right across the board. Do I have your support, Doc? Um, you vote for me? Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't exactly overwhelming, dude. <laughs> no, I'd vote for it. Yeah. I, I think it makes sense. <laughs> Modly for money. All right, let's get to the next question. Unfortunately, my next question, mate, I've, in my haste, I've cut off the person who asked this question. So my apologies. I know it's a bloke because he starts with my wife and I. And it, while it's possible that, uh, that this might be a same-sex partner, I do remember it was a bloke. So um, he said, my wife and I have been investing for only a couple of years. We love the podcast. And the advice coming from you, Fools, has helped immensely. Joking means this podcast or someone else's podcast? No, this podcast. You Definitely sure? this podcast. All right, okay, good. This good, is good. the best podcast ever. <laughs> well, speaking of which, he said, we recommend the podcast to everyone that is thinking about getting into the share market. It's all told, true. Told you it's the best podcast ever. Well, then he says, it's all true, but hopefully it's enough to get our question aired, aside from the cracker question we have. I think this he's got our number. He knows exactly what's going to work around here. Yep. He says, when we started investing, we looked to ETFs, exchange-traded funds, to get a solid base of diversity. And we looked at those dividend reinvestment plans to grow the portfolio. They are two very, very solid, smart starting points. Well done. A few of them were offering greater than 6.5% fully franked yields. They've now lost about 15 to 20% in their price, which looks bad in our portfolio. However, with the reduced price, they now have low PEs and huge dividend yields. For example, PAI, I don't know which one that is, is promising 9.7% fully franked yields with a PE of 72 we are thinking of jumping in again, but have been stung by dividends evaporating and share prices crashing, e.g. Telstra. Oops. It seems too good to be true. Why hasn't the share price been pushed up to reduce that yield? Is there something we are missing? That's a cracker of a question. Doc, to you first, mate. What's going on there? Well, okay, so I, I don't actually know any of those um, tickers they've quoted, mm-hmm. uh, except for I know Telstra. Yeah. Um, <laughs> move on, move on. Uh, have, Wham, Wham is Wilson Asset Management, by the way, okay. is the other one that was so, mentioned. So I'm guessing this is basically a fund or a listed, a listed, investment, listed, company. listed investment company, Correct. right? So, yep. yeah. So the issue here might be that the market has taken the PE down largely because they think that the earnings growth in the future it's mm-hmm. probably not as strong as it has been in the past. Yep. And um, yeah, so therefore, the, you know, if you're looking at a trailing PE, which is maybe like 10, but maybe the actual PE that you're going to see when it reports is mm. actually even lower, mm. right? And the lower PE is justified by the fact that maybe the earnings are not growing or the earnings are decelerating and so on. And mm-hmm. maybe there is not enough free cash flow to actually pay, maintain the dividend that mm-hmm. you are seeing on a trailing basis and therefore maybe the dividend is going to be cut. Again, this is all speculation. Usually when these sort of things happen, it is, uh, I mean, you know, if you see a dividend of 10%, more often <laughs> than not, it means that the dividend is going to be cut. Yeah. Um, you know, that just seems like an unsustainably high dividend because if you think about it, if the dividend is 10% and nothing, if the stock price never changes. I mm. mean, you're, you're very close to being the market, right? Um, without <laughs> doing pretty much Yeah, right, with the dividend alone. Yeah, yeah right. with, with the dividend alone. And if you re- reinvest the dividend, you know, you're sweet. Mm. So just something to keep in mind. I'm not saying that this is what is happening with those things because I have no idea what these things are. Um, but I would be just cautious that, you know, you're looking at a trailing P, what you need to look at probably is what the future yes. looks like yep. and the potential of dividend cut, the potential that it's not fully franked and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So usually I wouldn't, I, this is almost like a bit like, you know, the falling knife theory sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if things are deteriorating, then they don't immediately show up in the numbers. The numbers actually might look very attractive yep. on a trailing basis. You can buy more, and then you later on realize that, oops, that was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. um, so this could be one of those situations. Yep. Again, I don't know anything about these companies. I think it's fair, mate. So things like, for example, Telstra share price fell, NAB share price fell well and truly in advance of the dividend actually being cut because the market kind of knew it was going to happen or at least supposed it was going to, suggested or thought it was going to. It fell because it was expecting that. I think the only thing I would take question, I take issue with with our questioner's question was, he says, um, they have, uh, for example, here is promising 9.7% fully frank yields. Um, they may even well be doing that for the next half, maybe even next year if they've given a guidance of what they expect to pay out. That's different from necessarily how much they're going to generate. Yields are, look, so I run a service called Motley Fool Everlasting Income, and I'm not giving away too much to say. The average yield on that service is about 5.5%. And most of our most of our non-buyers, people who didn't buy it after they heard about it, said, well, I can get more somewhere else. And you know what? You absolutely can. But 
I reckon that to do so would be very, very risky. You're taking a risk if you're plenty of these listed investment companies are shadow index funds, which means they are 50% banks and miners. Now, I don't reckon that's a good idea for anyone's portfolio, particularly if you're looking for income, because you don't want to be tied up with half of your um, half your income exposed to two sectors. If the Australian economy was to falter meaningfully, the bank dividends would be cut and probably meaningfully. If the commodity prices fall minus share prices and the dividends will probably be cut meaningfully. You just don't want to be in a situation where your portfolio is exposed to too many concentrated risks. And I think that's exactly what's going on there. Frankly, banks, bank share prices are higher than they've been in a little while, but they're lower than they've been in the past because people are worried about their future growth. We've already talked about CBA and we kind of mentioned Suncorp on the way through. These are just businesses that I get, the yield is really, really attractive on the surface. And the easy thing for me in this for everlasting income that we offer would be to have a million banks leverage up, buy options, promise seven and a half percent we'd sell a million memberships um i'd look like a genius for about six months and then eventually something would go wrong and if i was to throw my hands up and say oh well who could have known that's not possible um i could probably even do that legitimately but it wouldn't help our members who would have lost money in the process so yeah i get the yield i get you want to maximize that there's even products out there by the way that effectively pay back some of your capital and pretend it's a yield which is just awful um you can in some circumstances it's not uh, i won't say it's a ponzi scheme because that would be that would be a unfair and b probably get me in jail uh for for not jail but get me in a court for slander um if you're paying back someone with a portion of what they're giving you, well, guess what? That's not really a yield. That's a capital return. If you want to give me $10, I'll give you back a dollar a year for 10 years. I'm not really giving you a 10% yield, am I? I'm just giving you some of your money back. So just be really, really, really careful when it comes to that. Absolutely take dividends. Absolutely take fully frank dividends if you have a tax situation that means you can use them. I think it's a great thing. Just be really, really careful that you're not you know, the whole price of everything and value of nothing thing. Yes, it looks attractive on the surface, but as Doc's already mentioned, if there's, if there's problems or risks there, you want to be a little bit careful. Modly full money. Mate, here's one for you. I, I'm I'm horribly, horribly offended. Jazza has sent you a question and didn't even bother mentioning me, uh, which frankly probably means he's been listening to this podcast and he realizes you're the brains of the outfit. But in any case, he says, um, Jazza says, hey, Doc, what do you think of the new India ETF from BetaShares? And is it as promising as the Asia ETF? So mate, I, I asked you the same question. I think it's two ETFs from India ETFs at the moment. Now, there's one from... Uh, Australian ETF Securities, and there's one from BetaShares. All of a sudden, uh, the Indian market's getting a bit of love, a bit of attention from Australian investors and Australian fund managers. Um, I'm sure Jazza hasn't missed the fact that you're Indian by birth. Uh, not even by birth, actually. You weren't, weren't born in India. That's a whole different story. Uh, but you're Indian by background. You, you know the market and the country pretty well, so you're exactly the right person to ask. What do you think of investors taking an ETF approach to investing in India? Well, that's a good question, and I haven't looked at the other one. Actually, I looked at this one um, after the Zaza's question came through. So this this is actually an interesting one. I'd say interesting because what this this the Beta Shares Fund is mm. it's um, it's an investment. They call it the India Quality Fund, mm-hmm. and it's called the Quality Fund because they're uh, they're basically an ETF that is uh, mimicking the performance of thirty Indian companies. Just only thirty, so it's pretty concentrated in that sense. Okay, thirty ranked by. Um, what they're calling the highest quality. So 30 of the highest quality, which in terms of, you know, there's some earning stability, they have low, you know, they're not highly leveraged companies. They've got high profitability in terms of, you know, net profit margins and mm-hmm. things like that. So okay. by definition, you are also getting much bigger companies, right? Okay. So, so in, in, you know, they hold, you know, the top 10 holds things like, you know, Tata Consultancy Services, which is an IT services company, mm-hmm. global IT services company, Infosys, again, another global IT services company, Hindustan Unilever, which is basically Unilever, but the Indian Indian huh, Unilever okay. subsidiaries. This is another interesting, interesting thing. In many yeah, yeah. many of the um, emerging markets, you'll find that the global companies have their Indian uh, have their local subsidiaries, which are actually listed, mm. um, a bit like Coca Cola Amital to some extent. Right? right. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Right. So, so this isn't exactly a, a traditional broad market ETF. This no. is kind of an actively managed ETF this where they're using a, a quality filter to, in theory, pick the hopefully, the best quality Indian companies. Yes. Um, I think the other one might have just been a straight ETF or at least a broader ETF. Well, an index fund, more of yeah, a proper that's index right. fund. That's so, right. The, what so do you make of it? Um, so, I mean, I, I don't mind it. I mean, here's the thing, right? You have to have, if you're investing in this, then it's a, it's a good, hmm. first of all, you've realized that it, the returns probably are going to be like the market, you know, a little bit better than the market. The historic returns here have been like 13.7% over the last five years okay. compounded. This is on the pretty good. Australian dollar terms, so you're beating the market oh, by, okay. um, uh, you're beating the market by, you know, a few percentage points here. Mm-hmm. Um, over the last three years, is not then. Then you also need to have a view on the Indian 
I guess, economy, mm-hmm. right? And in, in the, just like the rest of the world, the Indian economy is actually not in great shapes right now. There's mm-hmm. unemployment numbers are rising. GDP growth rate is a bit, you know, it's falling. It's still high compared to mm-hmm. here. But I mean, you know, um, it's it's not growing at like, you know, 9, 8% like that. It's like, you know, growing mm-hmm. at high sixes. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of not making, you know, so. Which which is kind of massive, but given the urbanization, given the, the rapid kind of industrialization of India, you kind of need that sort of growth rate, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and maybe, you know, you could say that India is not, you know, delivering what people would think it should be delivering at this point in mm. time. Um, that said, I mean, if you want emerging market invest, uh, like exposure, this could be a good option. I mean, in the sense that, you know, you, this is a, you, know, you get a diversified exposure to across sectors, mm. um, uh, in India, you get profitable companies. You get companies which which have strong brand name, well known, etc. So I mean, you know, mm. there's less risk in that sense, and then compensated mm. probably by less upside. In, yeah, okay. in, in the in the same form. Um, yeah, I, I mean, would I, you suggest I, the average investor have some exposure to India, like the Asia ETF? How would you how do you think about India as a as part of a globally diversified portfolio? So. Yeah, so I mean, some India exposure might be interesting for people if mm-hmm. you believe that the Indian government. So it, it here's the thing: if the, there's a you know the Modi government has been re-elected, they have absolute majority in the parliament in both mm-hmm. houses. If they were to enact some serious uh, economic liberalization or economic reforms, mm. I think the economy can really take off. Okay. Right? So if you hold the view that that is going to happen, or right. if you right. hold the view that you're going to wait till that starts happening, this could be a very interesting time to invest. I reckon it's about the best coiled spring in the world. I have to say, <laughs> you know, China's kind of doing its thing. I mean, China can always do more to, to kind of push growth higher, but it's, it is where it is and doing what it's doing. At some level, though, it does strike me that India has kind of been slower off the mark, more bureaucratic, probably more corruption, I think it's fair to say. But by dint of, of the sheer, just just underlying kind of untapped capacity of that economy, if and when, to your point, there was some liberalization, there was some modernization, it really could well be a comparative growth engine to China in, in one version of the future. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing to remember is that India has got, you know, like a, a very British style like court system and mm, so on, right? Mm, mm. So if you liberalize the economy and you make, you know, untighten some of those rules and right. reduce the red tape, it could be a very, very um, uh, conducive environment. Right, so the Western for, democratic kind of ideals, w- systems, processes. Exactly, but right. with a lot more runway right now. So it could be, it's, 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 India's been the coil spring for last 30 yeah, years. That's exactly right. right. So if yeah, that yeah, coil yeah. spring... <laughs> if actually, ever. Yeah, if ever, yeah, yeah. it could be great. And these are the companies that they have listed here, many of them are some of the best in, right. in that category. So in that sense. Right? Buy, so, sell, or hold this ETF, Doc. I'm going to put you uh, gonna put you on the spot here. If somebody wants emerging market exposure, this is actually a good one. I, I would I would be happy to buy. If if go. again with that caveat if you're interested in it. You heard it first from Doc. Modley for money. Mate, one from Nick. Nick says, Hi Scott and Doc. Just want to drop a quick message to say thank you for the tips on international investing in your recent podcast. It's something I've wanted information on for years and have never found a solution. I currently use NAB Trade, which I find expensive, and Stake, where I don't want to invest too much as it's a startup. So thank you for some more suggestions. I'll check them out. I'm a long-term listener and Rule Breakers US subscriber. Thanks for everything you guys do. I listen every week. Nick. Nick doesn't have a question, mate. I just want to read out the praise. This is like, this is praise plus praise plus praise. <laughs> so we love you, Nick, for uh, loving the fool. Uh, I'll say good day to you. And, you know, send us a question. We'll answer it. All right, mate. We've been going for a while. This is the last question we're going to answer. We've got plenty more for next week. So stay tuned, fools. This last one, though, comes from Antistatic12, <laughs> which sounds like... A cleaning product potentially or uh, or, or a, a brand new, something you buy online from a Kickstarter project. But anyway, Antistatic12 says, um, happy for my Twitter handle to be used. Thank you. We just did. Much praise. Much wow. You two are like a great wine. Gets better with age. I'm not in brackets, geez, Scott must be truly great then, which I'm slightly offended by. <laughs> Offset by the fact he thinks I'm great. So it's kind of one of the, I'm old, but I'm great. Eh, yeah, it's, it's, I'll take what I can get. Um, I, I'm just going to read that as Scott is great. Uh, he says, any thoughts on the Commonwealth Bank's latest product called ComSec Pocket? Should Raise, the app that's fully known as Acorns, or similar apps be worried? Unlike Spaceship, Raise, and others, you do own the underlying ETF. The ETFs are decent picks, blah, blah, blah. Does this help people who feel intimidated by the industry and jargon to get a foot in the door? I love this question, partly because I want to answer the question, partly because I want to give, it's not a wrap, at least I want to give a little bit of exposure to the product. We have no reason to. We have no commercial relationship with Commonwealth Bank or Comsec. Um, but it is something that's been around and about for a little while. So Comsec Pocket, for those who don't know, 
is an app that Comsec's making available. I think you can trade for as little as two bucks. Remember your trade? And you can buy shares for as little as 50 bucks worth at a time. In one of these ETFs, there's, a, there's about six or eight I think you can buy, choose from. A whole lot of stuff that's basically covering the Australian and international markets. So, uh, mate, I, I, I'm... <sighs> I'm loath to get people into stuff where they're investing really tiny amounts of money and still paying tiny amounts of brokerage, but as a percentage, that's still high, right? Two bucks on a $50 trade is still 4%. That's still a lot of dough. You're giving up basically half a year's gains before you start. So I wouldn't necessarily want people to rush in and pay what looks like small amounts of money for small trades because it can still be as expensive. It's the equivalent of spending 20 bucks on a $500 trade or 2000 uh, or 200 bucks on a $1,000 trade. So it's still it's still not cheap, $5,000 trade, I should say. It's not cheap, but it's it's a way of getting people started. Very simple. And as he says, unlike some of those other apps where you're kind of, you're paying someone a, a management fee and you kind of, you know, you've got this sweep thing going, it's a little bit complicated. It's basically like a kind of a, a cut down version of a brokerage that lets you buy some ETFs. It feels to me like a pretty good way to get people started. What do you reckon? So I have a question for you. Sure. Um, suppose I bought $500 of shares. Yep. Could, would I still pay that two ninety nine? I think the, I think it scales. Um, oh, it scales up. Okay. Yeah. So, but but it's basically you know it's a getting started up, right? If you're not going to, I mean, look, most people should go and if you're going to invest lots of money and you've got a lot of money to start with, brokerage. start with Comsec outright, right? Just go go straight to Comsec or someone similar. Go with a normal brokerage. But if you're going to add small amounts regularly into an ETF, this pocket app is a nice way to kind of just sweep a bit of cash into a. Uh, in an investment where you actually own the shares, as, as Andy Static Twelve mentions, that we can actually they can actually do something with. No, I mean it's in, it's interesting. Again, I don't, have not looked at the fee structure, but if it's mm. you know if I could invest five hundred dollars and pay two ninety nine or whatever it is, mm. that sounds very attractive to me. It's a like pretty a, good way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, well, at fifty dollars, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, fifty dollars, I'm paying like mm. you know two bucks on fifty dollars. Yeah. That's quite a bit, right? I'm only now left with forty eight, but yeah. still, I mean, it's a good way to start. I agree with that. Mate, we have a lot of questions, but we, we don't have as much time. We'll do it next time. How good's that? That's awesome. Stay tuned next week for us. This has been a longish podcast. Hopefully we've entertained and amused you with some interesting stats, some good news, and maybe some good answers to some very good questions. Certainly the questions were at least as good as our answers, probably better, but, uh, you know, we do our best. Other than that, mate, we're done. But before we go, don't forget, you listeners can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or, as always, your favorite Android podcast app if you're among the more enlightened people who don't just follow the iTunes Boo. slavishly. Uh, and if you if you do like what we're doing, please give us a rating, give us a comment, leave us a review, let people know that you like the app, help them find it as well, the podcast, I should say. And, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox, and why wouldn't you? By going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.